0: TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I am without my co-host George. You know, we did an episode on parenting just recently, and we are talking about the importance of prioritizing and, and making our, you know getting our work-life harmony right and all those sort of things we've spoken about recently on the show, and that's exactly what George is doing today. He is in uh, daddy daycare right now looking after his little toddler, and so, uh, and so I'm on my own today, uh, but I'm very lucky to be joined by a, a great interview guest today, which is Daniel Sippel. He holds a Bachelor of Health Science in naturopathy, he practices in Narrawali which is on the south coast of New South Wales, near Kiama where we went recently for our Arwanis Base Camp, which was a beautiful part of the world. He specializes in the areas of autoimmunity, the gut microbiome, environmental toxicity and a whole lot more. He's been through his own complex health journey, which we'll talk about shortly. And so his, met- his mission is to educate and empower patients to understand how to apply the naturopathic principles to unravel the upstream causes of their illness and begin their own journey back to health. And so... You know, a big part of the motivation for this interview was, uh, you know, we had George post for us on his uh, Facebook page about what topics they would like us to talk about on that paleo show, and, and one of his followers suggested leaky gut and IBS was something they wanted to talk about, and so here we are, and we're going to talk all about it today. So welcome to the show, Dan Sippel.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brett. Looking forward to, uh, to having an, an awesome chat today about all things gut-related.
0: Mate, it's going to be lots of fun. And I tell you what, I was just looking at your pictures, Dan. And, uh, you know, you're up in that part of the world, southern New South Wales, near another friend of mine who we've had on the show, Paul Thompson, the barefoot podiatrist. And uh, uh, yes. it, it must be a bit of a thing up that way, the, the long hair, the man bun. It seems to be the look. <laughs> Is that, is that
1: right? <laughs> I, I knew you were going to bring that up the first thing. <laughs> no, that's fine, mate. Um, yeah, no, look, it's um, it does uh, do the rounds, I must say, around the uh, the, the gentleman down in this way. But um, I've oh, been sporting it for a while now, so um, I like to think that other people are sort of copying me. Yeah, no, just so, joking.
0: So Paul's copying you. That's what we're saying. All right. So it's good, good to get that cleared out. I know Paul does listen in, so he might, uh, he might tune in on social media and let us know his thoughts on that too. But, mate, back to the serious stuff, because we have got some serious stuff to talk about and you're a very knowledgeable person so I don't want to be too flippant with you but you know you've mentioned here your own complex health journey let's start there Uh, what has been your journey for your own health
1: mate mine my health journey started um, I'm 31 years old now it started for me back when I was about 16 or 17 Um, prior to then I never gave a a thought a second thought to health but um, it all sort of Came, you know, um, fast paced and 100 miles an hour in my year 12 year when you're under all that sort of HSE pressure that that goes with that that time of your life and um, basically fell really ill with the the good old glandular fever bug Epstein-Barr virus. And um, it was a real sort of slow recovery after that. But essentially, in a nutshell, it took a good two to three years for me to go, something is really wrong here. I've done all the things that my GP's told me to do. Um, You know, visibly, you can tell that something's still wrong with me. Um, I've got very, you know, sort of sporadic symptoms um, like brain fog, um, you know, weight gain, weight loss, um, inability to to maintain a healthy weight, um, poor immune function, kept getting sick over and over and over and getting pumped with um, antibiotics at the time and, um, and not knowing any better um, myself at the time, you know, you, you're obviously young and quite naive, um, just kept sort of falling into that pattern whereby I'd see a different doctor and say, what, what's going on? You know, I had um, glandular fever in my HSTE, now it's two or three years on and I'm, I'm still quite ill. Um, and their answer was more antibiotics and more antibiotics. Anyway, um, cut a long story short, I changed to a more sort of integrative doctor at the time and um, she was really, I was really, you know, thankful enough to, at the time to, for her to look at, look outside the box of the the standard sort of diagnosis and um, she picked up straight away that I wasn't obviously, obviously absorbing my nutrients and um, that was the first sort of indicator that perhaps there might be something um, gut related, more underlying. Um, so, you know, a, a massive sort of Test of pathology from that point on, and that revealed celiac disease. So I was, I think, nineteen or twenty, yeah, probably twenty years old um, when I was eventually diagnosed celiac. But um, did all the things that the, you know, the the specialists say to do: go gluten free, take gluten out completely, and you know, you'll be fine. Off you go and see you later. So that didn't happen um, for me. So then, probably by my, I guess, early twenties to mid twenties. Um, a little bit of health came back to the point to where I could get by, I could, I could, um, you know, function day to day, but I was still um, underweight, um, struggling with energy, still had poor immune function, had terrible gut health because of the, you know, the plethora of antibiotics that I'd been exposed to and just wasn't thriving. And um, also by that time, you know, there was other autoimmune symptoms that sort of came into it, such as um, psoriasis and chronic fatigue and joint inflammation, and all this kind of uh, myriad of symptomatology. Which, you know, now as a naturopath, I look back in and think, oh, of course, um, you know that that's going to take place when you've when you've got a gut that's just been through the the wars and been shot to pieces with antibiotics and um, is now quite leaky and porous and so on and so forth. But um, it was it was probably around that time that I started to see that perhaps there was wasn't um, a really strong, um, I guess, treatment plan and protocol from the the Western orthodox approach for people like myself that really didn't fit the criteria. So because I'd been diagnosed celiac and was on a gluten-free diet, Western medicine had lost interest in me at that point because it was like, okay, you, you, you're meeting the criteria, health should be good. But, I mean, to look at, as I say, underweight, um, poor energy, really poor immune function, mental health, the, the full gamut, Brett. So um, that's when I started really to, to open up the books and, and to, to read and get online and, and, and research as you do. So I've, I guess in a nutshell I've got a pretty classic sort of autoimmune um, story but it, it definitely had that, that infectious sort of trigger point at the start and it took a very, very long time to, um, to really sort of go back through and, and see where all the weak links are around the body and do lots of functional testing and seeing lots of naturopaths and integrative doctors and um, eventually doing a, a six-year health degree.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that's one way to go about fixing it, isn't it? To, to jump right in. But I'd love to go back to the start, right? Because obviously yeah. talking about glandular fever, Epstein-Barr, you know, often there's sort of uh, chronic fatigue associated with that as well. And, you know, these do seem to be topics that aren't necessarily always well understood by your conventional GP. Um, and yes. as you said, they sort of have some limited tools in terms of approaching that. And when those don't work, sometimes uh, it can feel as the uh, as the person, you know, being presenting to these, health practitioners sometimes it feels like there's almost a little bit of doubt as to whether as to how genuine these problems are as to how much this is affecting you as to you know this symptomatology that's going on and on yeah, did you experience that like did you feel like there was sometimes a little bit of doubt around whether you really had conditions or whether it was in your head or whether it, you know you were playing it up to be more than it was those sort of things
1: Mate, undoubtedly that that was. I'm glad you brought that up because un, undoubtedly that was the, one of the biggest things that I, I can remember. You know, sitting in front of the um the, the the gastroenterologist, um you know 2005, 2006, and just having both him as well as you know family members just looking at me like, you know, you you you're sort of jaking you know yanking the chain a bit so to speak, and you know is it is it is it really there or is it kind of in your head a little bit too? You know, you're making it up perhaps a little bit. And don't get me wrong, you you go you definitely go through those periods where you're like maybe it is a little bit in my head and maybe the doctors are right. Um, but I think intuition always pulls you back. And that's the thing. Once I sort of went out on my own, the intuition came in and, and you know, kept coming in and saying to me, no, 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 go to the books, you know, read about rebuilding the body, um, you know, look look to food, look to diet. And then I found herbal medicine and that was a game changer for me. Once I started bringing in the herbs in you know, the immune modulating herbs and uh, the antibacterials and started cleaning up the body and detoxifying the body and then felt a different, difference that was when i was like aha okay now now i get it i I, this is not just a hippie thing you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's the classic case of you know that that old saying that you know if if all you've got is a hammer then everything looks like a nail you know when when your only tools you've got to approach this with are really drugs and surgery then you look for things that are amenable to drugs and surgery and and sometimes when it falls out of that um, then, then you're not really sure what to do or if, in fact, there is anything to do at all. And so uh, this is a, a problem, I think, that comes across many people who are in a similar situation to yourself. And I have no doubt there would be people listening to this podcast show right now who are in a similar situation, who are sort of wondering, you know, what do I do? I've kind of tried everything. And many of them will have done the conventional approach. Many of them will have already tried some alternative therapies as well, but they're kind of still in that point of being stuck and not getting where they want to be and having people doubt them. What would your advice be to those people, Dan?
1: Yeah, really good question, Brett. So the first thing I say, and I I have to say, I see a lot of people in clinic um, that remind me so much of myself, particularly at that age as well, you know, early 20s, where you sort of take that leap in life where, you know, you you suddenly you've you've left school, you're under all this pressure, everything's, you know, you're an adult, essentially. So responsibilities through the roof, but at the same time, your body's failing you. um, And, you know, you're under all that pressure and desperate for answers. And so what I like to say to people is um, save the guesswork, work, work with a practitioner that's going to utilize functional pathology, get some baseline data of where your body is at. You know, um, Hippocrates said it, as you well know, 2,000 years ago, everything begins in the gut. Start with a really good um, digestive stool analysis, a comprehensive um, panel there where you look at all your, your inflammatory markers. Um, you're screening for dysbiosis, you're looking at intestinal permeability, um, you're looking at the spread of good and bad bacteria. Um, you know they are expensive, but I say to people, invest in that to start with as as your baseline and work from there because um, naturopaths all well intended. if they' not if they' if they're not getting the data and combining that with that traditional sort of approach with with the herbs and nutrients, sometimes it can be a little bit hit and miss, and everyone's different too. Um, So, yeah, I always say start with some functional pathology and and bring in the natural medicine in conjunction with that.
0: All right. So this seems to be a topic that's come up a number of times lately is the stool testing. And I've got to be honest, this is something I haven't done yet. And it it seems to be people suggesting that this is a good way to go lately. So I want to know Mm. more about stool testing. I haven't done it. How does stool testing – how do we do stool testing? Because I'm kind of curious. (laughs) And one of the things you mentioned was the difference between – Microscopy, if I can get it out there. That's uh, the
1: one. (laughs) Cultural
0: testing versus DNA molecular testing. Um, Yes. What is the difference and why is that important?
1: Yep, absolutely. So I'd say prior to five years ago, um, the the sort of, I guess, um, gold standard for as far as naturopaths went um, for, for stool testing was to use labs that did um, microscopy, as you said, which is essentially growing stool in a culture-based medium um, and looking at, you know, different microbes and assessing their, um, you know, assessing for dysbiosis and overgrowth and things like that. That sounds like a great um, day job. <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs>
0: well, that sounds fantastic
1: yeah um, but so it turns out that style of um, approach as far as stool testing goes right back to the early 1900s when we first isolated different strains of bacteria and we've just been doing that for um, you know li- literally almost a hundred years up until sort of the last decade as I say um, the problem we found with that was that we were only able to see 80 to 90 percent of um, oh sorry let me backtrack a bit the problem we, we found with uh, with microscopy techniques is that we' were only able to see about 10 to 20 Twenty percent of the spread of microbes. So, um, for a long time, you know, both integrative GPS and naturopaths were, um, I guess, doing the right thing by assessing the microbiome, but we very limited into into what we could see. So, we we're always getting, I guess, limited results. Don't get me wrong; we'd, we'd obviously get people that you know, um, were able to uh, reduce the overgrowth that, that that were plaguing them and, and bring about um, a much more diverse and healthier microbiome, which equates to, to um, better health overall. But there was always um, a bit of sort of hit and miss with with that style of techniques of assessing the microbiome. But it wasn't until, as I say, recently when PCR techniques came in, like DNA and molecular techniques um, came in, that virtually took the, um, the uncertainty out of it and um, were able to see this whole array of other microbes um, that we previously just could not grow that just wouldn't culture in a, in a, in a stool-based um Um, petri dish essentially so the the dna um, assessment is is the way to go in terms of looking at the microbiome because you're seeing such a greater spread of diversity and a whole heap of microbes as i say that previously were undetectable Um, so whilst you know a lot of practitioners were um, looking at that initial sort of 10 to 20 percent and and diagnosing from that and saying you know um, you know we've treated you let's repeat the test oh look we've seen that those have come down that's great Um, that's all well and good but as I say we weren't we weren't able to see this other whole array of microbes um, which we know now are so essential for things like butyrate production and um, healing the gut all
0: right so we'll get on to that in a second in terms of the leaky gut and the IBS but a question I want to ask you before we move on to that I'm kind of really fascinated about this is it seems like we've developed much greater techniques for measuring what gut bacteria you've got in your gut Um, Mm -hmm. but, but I guess the query I've always got with this is how well do we know what the gut microbiome should look like uh, in terms of you know, what to do about it from there? Like, like, do we really know what it's supposed to look like and how that should vary for individuals and in different locations and different diets and those sort of things? Or is, or is that still kind of developing as well?
1: Yeah, really awesome question there, Brett. And so I often get that one um, asked quite you know, quite often by a lot of people. The, the short answer to it is in terms of bacteria, at this point in time, we do have a pretty good idea in terms of um, just bacteria alone, so not, not fungi or RK or um, other sorts of um, organisms in the system. But as far as bacteria go, we've got a pretty damn good idea of, of what constitutes a healthy microbiome. Um, and my uh, my mentor, Dr. Jason Horolak down in Tasmania, always um, tells me that you know, you get you get um, annual meetings of all these famous sort of gastroenterologists right around the world that, that sit at a table and sort of discuss you know what a healthy microbiome looks like. And of course, there's always massive differences in um, opinion. But what we can all, what they can all agree on, um, I'm told often, is that the more diverse the microbiome, so the the spread of microbes, the higher the diversity score, the healthier the individual. So that's what we're really aiming for: is um, a really diverse spread of microbes So we often see um, a low diversity um, in Western society with really high, even if if we see high counts of like quote-unquote good bacteria, that sort of doesn't mean much in the context of low diversity. What we're aiming for is, as I say, really sort of um, broad diversity and a good spread of microbes that we know are associated with um, anti-inflammatory benefits along the colon wall as well as producing um, butyrate. And so there's different um, species, I guess you could say of, of bacteria that are responsible for that which we'll get into um, but yeah essentially that's what we're aiming for and a lot often in clinic what we see is people that have been on restricted diets for quite a long time um, like myself hammered with antibiotics um, sometimes even hammered with herbal antibiotics for for too long and they've got just diversity scores that are that are really really poor and so they're only able to handle um, a certain restricted um, amount of food so it, it is a little bit more difficult um, to correct those, those types of people's microbiome, not to say that it's impossible, it certainly isn't, but um, what we really want to aim for is, is um, a very diverse uh, bacterial but a diverse palate as well. So the more types of different uh, foods and fibres that we can expose ourselves to, the more diverse our micro- microbiome becomes.
0: Yeah, see, I'm fascinated by this concept, Dan, so I'm going to I'm gonna keep delving in here because I really want to ask you Go some questions it. around this. But so, yeah. so the, the thing that comes up for me, I guess, when I hear this is because people talk about this. I've heard this a lot recently. People talk about this diversity of the microbiome and, and often the... The follow-on from that is then to suggest we need to have a really diverse diet and be exposed to a whole range of different things to develop a really diverse microbiome. And I guess my yeah. question around that, when I think about that from a bit of a paleo perspective, is I, kind of, I look at different societies around the world, where we, whether we're looking at you know, Papua New Guinean tribes who eat 80% hemp, sweet potatoes, or Inuit tribes who eat lots of fat and blubber and seafood, you know, that... I guess those cultures who were thriving around the world in this kind of hunter-gatherer society didn't necessarily have a very diverse diet, but seemingly were quite healthy at the same time. So – How does that fit with this picture of like wanting to have a diverse diet and a diverse microbiome and and then looking at, I guess, these paleo examples of cultures where, you know, in their diverse locations before we started shipping food all around the world and, you know, I can get Mm -hmm. blueberries from Canada and oranges from America and, you know, whatever. You know, how does that kind of fit in with that sort of paleo perspective?
1: yeah sure sure really good question so the consensus is there is that they weren't bombarded with the the insults that we are today in in this this modern age so for example anything that can sort of affect microbiome diversity above and beyond diet um, is is really the the sort of um, the thing we're talking about in terms of the differences between our our paleolithic ancestors and you know ancestral hunter-gatherer tribes um, that had good diversity scores we know um, compared to, to modern society and so so we got to, we've got to, you know, consider things like the antibiotics in the food chain, um, pesticides and herbicides. Stress alone can can um, lower diversity scores. Stress alone can um, increase, you know, the the tight gaps in- Tight gap junctions that line the gut and therefore increase um, intestinal permeability. So I think um, the overall sort of take home message is that anything that um, you know ab- above and beyond diet that can lower diversity we have to factor in there when we're looking at the you know the, d- the juxtaposition between uh, the diversity of a-, a modern sort of age human versus you know someone ten thousand years ago. Um, does that sort of answer the question? I hope yeah, I, think I
0: so I think so. I think it's a I think it's an interesting. Um, conversation to have well, I can sort of see both sides of the equation on that one so I'm going to be really interested to see where that goes in the next sort of decade or two I reckon because it's a it's a really interesting yeah it's a really interesting sort of juxtaposition I reckon those two ideas but let's move yeah. on because we want to get to the actual listeners question now that I've got all my questions out the way because you know I just need to do that uh, but, but the link, the link then between the microbiome leaky gut and IBS let's talk about that Dan
1: yeah, sure, definitely. And so um, I guess IBS, like chronic fatigue syndrome, is like a very much, as you know, broad umbrella term that kind of doesn't really mean anything, I suppose. It's a it's a term that a lot of people get diagnosed with when there's really no answers left and, you know, um, a mainstream health healthcare practitioner has done the full gamut of testing in their repertoire. They've done the colonoscopy, endoscopy. Um, you know, they've looked for really sort of red, red flags, I guess, in the in the GIT and can't find anything, but the person is still sitting there with... Um, Um, You know, suboptimal digestive function, Um, it could be IBS-C, so IBS constipation predominant or IBS-D, diarrhoea predominant, um, or sometimes a bit of a mix between both. Um, and so what we often find as natural healthcare practitioners is that there's usually an infective trigger that kind of um, starts that plethora of symptomatology and so it's often um, I guess a matter of looking really outside the box and and doing things like the comprehensive digestive stool analysis um, as well as the leaky gut wall test to to work out the degree of damage and to work out if there are still some stubborn infections causing low-grade chronic inflammation um, and really working from there to like I say um, increase the the person's palate from so eating you know four or five different foods to obviously you know um, you know 30 40 different types of species of foods per week which is uh, what we're really aiming for. To increase diversity, and so um, yeah, I mean it's 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 one of those things, Brett. It's pretty frustrating as a practitioner, um, as well as for, for people that are going through it, that are just stuck with this 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 term, and then they start to attach to it and say, you know, this is me. I have this, and it's like, no, that's this is your this is your this is an imbalance. Essentially, it's an imbalance of good and bad flora, and we're going to do everything we can to um, to look at the underlying drivers and to um, you know put a custom protocol together for that particular person.
0: And, you know, there seems to be sort of a couple of different schools of thought around how to go about healing this and sort of improving this gut microbiome as well, where, you know, some people seem to be wanting to go straight towards the, um, you know, probiotics and changing the diet and really trying to get that balance right. Um, and mm. others are sort of saying, well, actually, you know, you might actually be doing damage by going that way. You know, it may be that you need to heal your gut lining first before you're ready to start introducing some of these probiotics or kombuchas or sauerkrauts or whatever people want to introduce in. Um, you know, what's your take around that debate? Do we need to be careful with the fermented foods and the probiotics?
1: Mate, we re- I'm glad you brought up. We really do, I think. I, I, I see it just all too often. And I remember going through that myself, um, jumping into things too quickly, and especially when there is that, that under lying dysbiosis still present and then bringing in lots of um, you know species of bacteria which we're not really sure um, what constitute you know a, a glass of kombucha or um, or sauerkraut or whatever we're not really sure um, what sort of strains we're ingesting in them and so if we do have a dysbiosis by all means those sorts of live bacteria in those counts can absolutely upset the the balance um, it doesn't happen in everyone but that's why again I, I do sort of come back to the, the the functional data and starting with a good baseline to, to know the spread of bacteria. And so if we see someone, uh, for example, with an overgrowth of, of yeast, the, the last thing we're going to want to do is, is to bring in lots of kombucha. And, um, you know, I get a lot of people sitting across from me in clinics saying, well, hang on, I, you know, I hear about this all the time on the radio, on the TV. Isn't this good for the gut? You know, it's just tagged as a, a gut-friendly kind of item. And it's like, yeah, it can be. Um, but it's not for everyone at, at any time, you know. Um, so that comes back to individualization. It's always about the individual person, their story, their unique gut makeup, Um yeah, and you just have to really work with that. And I've seen the fermented foods do really, really good things. In, in having said all that, once the person um, has a healed gut and is tolerating a more broad, diverse kind of range of foods, um, absolutely, because we know, like a probiotic, a fermented food item um, is going to contain a large, you know, large amounts of um, good bacteria that that have a beneficial action on their way through. And that kind of leads me into another point, Brett, about um, a bit of a myth around uh, fermented foods and that. Um, A lot of my patients... um and a lot of the general public too, don't get me wrong, still kind of think that they, they do colonize the gut and they do permanently stay in the gut. And it's like, Oh, I had, you know, antibiotics, um, for for two weeks and now I'm going to drink lots of kombucha to repopulate my gut. And it's like, that doesn't, doesn't quite happen like that as much as we wish it did as much as we wish it does. Um, it's more, it's more that they pass through the gut. They have a beneficial action. They hang around, you know, between seven to 14 days and then they're out of there, they're out of there again. And so, um, what I really like to do is to re- re-educate people around it and say, no, we're, we're going to put a strategy together that's going to feed up the good bugs that are probably just hanging on in your gut um, that you've been born with to, to, to produce those actions for you so you're not relying on taking a probiotic for the rest of your life that doesn't hang around. Um, so, there's that. different methods. Yeah, yeah. There's me too. There's there's different methods we can we can use to to feed up the in, the indigenous populations of good bacteria. Um, but yeah, I think that one's important to, to sort of hit on the head because I still see a lot of people that um, think they can you know drink kombucha and and eat sauerkraut and kimchi and that sort of thing and repopulate their gut and it, it just doesn't work out like
0: that yeah it's kind of a bit like the idea of exercising away a bad diet isn't it like you can't just, you <laughs> yeah, can't just butcher it. away a bad diet or a bad lifestyle you know and it, it sort of it, to me it sort of mirrors the approach we're now seeing coming through with farming for example where they're saying well no you actually you know if you want healthy plants you need to get the soil right you know and it's always the same approach it's like we need to get the environment in our gut right So that it's healthy for those good bacteria to grow rather than just try and keep chucking in good bacteria and hoping some of them stick.
1: Exactly right, boom that's exactly right. and I think that kind of feeds back into the the what we we're talking about earlier with the hunter-gatherer tribes and that they, they're starting life with very good native bacteria. They're not hampered by um, c-sections and um, you know um, formula feeding which which you know by the same token are needed in, in, in some you know in some circumstances. don't get me wrong but um, just the insult in Western society in this day and age on the microbiome compared to that of our Paleolithic ancestors, it's chalk and cheese you know um Absolutely. And, I, and there's yeah. so many
0: different ones you know your chlorine in the water and then you know cleaning products and it, like there's so many different things that can have an impact on our gut as well now one thing i want to ask you about because we're, we're almost out of time this has gone so fast you're just sharing so much good stuff but <laughs> I, I really want to ask you about going grain free or legume free long term in terms of impact on the gut because this is something that's sure. just talked about a lot and we've seen people talking about, for example, safe starches or, you know, all these different concepts around making sure we're we're fueling those gut bacteria. You know, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, really, really good point, Brett. Um, I guess the, the sort of my, – my point on that is I, I can definitely see the need for a restricted diet as, as a baseline sometimes. So, for, for instance, if someone comes in and they've got a plethora of gut symptoms, they're not absorbing their food, they're reacting to absolutely everything – that's when a restricted diet, you know, um, should and can be used and is quite beneficial to kind of just clean the slate, strip it all back. Um, You know, sometimes that looks like a gluten and dairy-free diet. For others, it looks like a low FODMAP diet. Um, But in a nutshell, long term, what we see is we we tend to find um, people sometimes, because they reach a level of comfort, they attach themselves to those types of diets and they they can stay on them too too long. Um, And what we kind of see in terms of their their diversity scores and when we look at their, their stool test is that if that has gone on for for, i'm talking you know sometimes like a year two years three years where people are on really really restricted diets certain bugs in the gut responsible for for feeding off of different types of fibers and mucilages and gums and pectins and that sort of thing that we get from a, a broad diversity of dietary fibers and plants they start to go extinct and once they go extinct the microbiome loses diversity, and then that alone is associated with with poorer health outcomes. So, I guess, as I say, long term, it's probably not such a good idea to, to stay on a restricted diet. If you're finding that you're only tolerating a, a small range of foods, it's usually because there's an underlying underlying factor to that, and that's where you need to work with a with a healthcare. You know practitioner to, to get to the root cause um, but by all means you know sometimes you know people uh, do definitely benefit and and get back to a level of comfort where they can function from a restricted diet and then slowly but surely as they start to repair the leaky gut wall balance the microbiome out um, they can then start to bring in the the foods and the fibers um, that they're reacting to but but now um, that they you know can start actually feeding their, their good bacteria because in essence our, our good bacteria they need fibre to thrive, it's just that simple and they need different types of fibres like I described, so your gums, your pectins, mucilages and things like that and so um, that kind of feeds into to the legumes. So there's a there's a lot of debate, and there has been a lot of debate over the years, uh, which you know people like yourself and and myself have watched in the paleo community. Um, and don't get me wrong, I always start people with with a good you know real strict sort of paleo template, and then we increase it from there. But I do like to see the legumes come back in eventually, uh, because they do have that that beneficial action of feeding butyrate producing microbes um, in in the gut. And a lot, a lot of those microbes, when people first come to me, we do the stool testing. They're usually ones, unfortunately, that have, that have suffered the most from the antibiotics and restricted diets.
0: Yeah, all right. So let's define what we mean when we say restrictive diet, right? Because I'm really curious about this. So I'm, I'm a, I eat a paleo diet predominantly, you know, not 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the time. And so, you know, some people would define that as a restrictive diet. I tend not to define a restrictive diet because I had a really broad range of, um, you know, fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and meats and all those sort of things. And so if I've been doing that for, let's say, 10 or 15 years, which is probably what I've been doing it for... You know, I feel like my health is really good. You know, I feel like everything's going well. You know, is this a reason, you know, is there enough reason there for me to say I should stop doing that? Or should I be going and getting, a, you know, a stool test to see? Or, or should I just be happy that my health is going well, everything's feeling good, and that maybe this is just working for me?
1: Yeah, look, really good question, and I think you know the old saying: if it's not broken, don't fix it. And so, if someone sits in front of me and and they're 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 saying they're, they've got good energy, um, they're you know they're, they're pooing once or twice a day, um, there's no pain, there's no inflammation, there's no mucus, there's no bleeding, there's no malabsorption, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then it's not it's not worth going down you know that path. So um, I guess it, it is individual at the end of the day, Brett, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, in terms of a restricted diet, that's usually the folks that I see that they're eating brown rice, um, they're eating maybe one type of green, um, one type of fruit. Um, they can only handle, uh, you know, uh, you know, pork, for example, or something like that, and and they've been that way for a long time. Um, so yeah, I, I I make the distinction between that versus someone like you're saying who is on a more sort of diverse, colorful paleo template um, that maybe is just restricting gluten grains. That 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 is what I I, I don't class that as a restricted diet by any means
0: yeah cool all right that was good because yeah like i said everyone has a different definition of what they mean by restricted you know and usually yeah. <laughs> for a lot of people it seems to be anything different to what they recommend is restrictive and, and even kind of what yeah. they recommend is totally fine you know it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. an interesting concept there so mate this has been an absolutely fascinating episode uh, i have got to ask you a question dan how old are you I'm 31. 31, far out. So I just find it fascinating, these like young guys and girls coming through in, in these health and wellness fields who are just so knowledgeable and so on top of the research and so all over It's just fantastic to see, mate. So well done. Great job. It's been such an informative episode. I've absolutely loved it, and I'm sure everyone else has felt the same way.
1: Likewise, Brett. Thank you so much for having me on, mate, and hopefully we can um, hook up again in the future and um, explore it again in in, uh, further detail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, at least do another podcast interview. Maybe hook up might be going a little bit too far, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so mate i'm sure people are going to find out more about you so um, they can go and find you at the functional um, and yep. on instagram and i'm about to jump on and follow you right now as soon as i finish this recording which is the.functional.natropath. i uh, can definitely check you out there mate so keep up the great work it's been an absolute pleasure thanks brad appreciate it mate talk to you soon perfect so for everyone else until next week join the conversation on facebook Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join a newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show.
1: This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash the wellness couch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.